0: It's nice to have hope. It's nice to have hope. Do you have hope? That's sort of the question, right? Do you have hope? How do you know if you have hope? How do you know if you have hope? Does what you call hope work? You know, does what do you have hope? What, What happens when you're in a situation when all hope is gone? Think of hope like a flashlight. You know, do you do you have a flashlight? How do you know you have a flashlight? Does your flashlight work? How are you going to tell? Right? If I hand you a flashlight and you say, well, I, yeah, I've got a flashlight. I've got, I've got hope. I've got a flashlight. And you flash it around. Can you see it? Have you ever tried to, like, change the batteries in your flashlight in the middle of the day? And you're, you're like, ah, is it? We have to like, put it right in your eyeball, right, to see it, right? Because you're, you're surrounded by, by light. Well, does your flashlight work when? Right? This is the test for light, Does it work when all other lights go out? And that's the question for our hope. Right? When do we need hope? Not when like things are going well and when we feel like, oh, I've got tons of hope. I'm I'm healthy, my family's healthy, I've I've got a job, we're 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 starting to save a little bit, my my just got new tires on the car, right? Oh everything's going well. Those are those are all my hopes. What happens when all your hopes are gone? We need hope for when hope is gone. That's when hope actually, real hope, true hope, kicks in. That's when you really need that flashlight charged up and batteried up and ready to go. And so as we come to Scripture, and Scripture invites us to meet the true hope, that's where we need to start to see that real hope. We need to start where hope is gone, and that's That's what Isaiah 5 is all about. Isaiah 5 means to take us to that place where all hope is gone, which is where real hope begins. It's where all other hopes go out. So let's open up in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. We're going to walk through it, give you just a brief overview of Isaiah 5. As you can kind of see from Nate's reading, it's kind of broken up into two main sections. There's the first one that's sort of like the song Right, So it starts off, let me sing for my beloved. You can almost see like a guy in a puffy hat with a feather going, let me sing for my beloved. You know, like (laughs) like this troubadour thing. But then what happens, right? It goes on this prophetic journey where it starts off as like a thing that we're doing together. And this is a neat song. And then pretty soon, the bony finger of the prophet is shaking in the face of everybody who's listening. So the song becomes this attack by verse 7. And then from 8 to the end of the chapter are a series of woes and consequences. Woes and therefore the punishments that are going to come because of Israel's wickedness and injustice. And it all ends, look with me at the very end of Isaiah 5, the last sentence, the second half of verse 30, if one looks to the land, you look across the land and behold darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by the clouds. Darkness and distress. That's that is where Judah is. That's where God's people are. They are, they have lost all losable hopes. They're in darkness and distress. Alright, so that's an overview. Let's go back and walk through the passage. So let's look at the song in verses one to seven. This is the tells the story of this vineyard, which is actually kind of a common way to refer to, to Israel and God's people. So it seems like a weird kind of image or metaphor for us. But actually, this is fairly common because, and here's the connection, and we'll talk more about this in a couple minutes. So Israel was called to kind of be a new garden of Eden. They were called to carry the garden, the Garden of Eden, in seed form. So it was common for them to refer to themselves as God's vineyard. That they were they were that new Garden of Eden. God planted a, He planted the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. And Israel thought of themselves that same way. So there's a the story of this vineyard. Now this vineyard, it says, is well provided for, well taken care of. But in verse two, it yielded wild grapes. Now one of my commentators said that that word is literally stinky grapes, and I think anytime you can say stinky in a sermon, you're you're getting points. So I think that's a I like that. You know, so you imagine, you know, you, you unscrew the lid on the grapes, and oh, right, it's. That's what that's what God is getting. He's done everything he needs to get good grapes, to produce good fruit, and he goes and he checks it out. He crushes some or whatever they did to check it out, and it's stinky grapes. All right, so then there's a turn in verses 3 and 4. He invites the inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah to judge, what else could I have done? What should I have done instead? Verses 5 and 6, here's what he's going to do. Now, I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. He's going to let it be ruined. He says, I'm going to remove all of the things that previously I had given it. All the comforts, all the supports, all the protections. And now I'm just going to let nature take its course and let it revert. And then, of course, the big prophetic reveal in verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of the hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice and righteousness, but behold, bloodshed, and behold, an outcry. And so God had given His people everything that they needed to, to do what's right, to, to be a light to the nations, to have a, a righteous and just society, and then to, to spread that righteousness and justice. And when you go back into the, the Torah and read Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you see that God had He'd laid it all out for them. They were going to be the, the animal wagon all the nations, and ten of them were going to put to flight a thousand of the enemies. And, and this is God's plan for it. He'd given them everything that they needed for this, but instead, when he goes and he looks back at what they had done with what He had given them, bloodshed and outcry. and the word outcry is really interesting here. it's only used in two other contexts in the Old Testament. Uh, God punishes Sodom and Gomorrah because of the outcry that had reached him, from the people who were suffering from the injustices and the violence of the, the rulers and the leaders the majority population of those towns. And the second context is in Egypt at the beginning of Exodus, that the outcry of God's people reached him because they were suffering under the violence and all the things that they were suffering from in, in Egypt. So Isaiah is saying... God looked for good grapes, He looked for justice and righteousness, and instead he hears the same thing from the inhabitants of Israel and Judah that he heard from the Israelites back in Egypt, and he heard from the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah who were being oppressed by the people there. What's going on? And therefore and therefore, there is a list of six woes. Woes are it's an old-timey word. It's a, it's a curse. not a curse word, it's a curse. Like how in the Bible, when it wants to bless somebody, it says, blessings, you know, blessed be you. Woe is the word for cursed be you. And it, it captures the emotions of God being very angry, right? He's saying, I'm very angry right now, but I'm also very sad. I'm very sad and I'm very angry. And you see, because of uh, the situation there. So there's two woes, and then some punishments, and then four woes and some more punishments. We look at the woes, you see a picture of material prosperity. Right? Israel's been growing, they're having a great time, but while their material prosperity is growing, while everybody's more beautiful, everybody seems to be dressed better, everybody's laughing louder, there's a lot more flashlights, flashbulbs going off. While all that's growing, their emptiness is growing as well. Their sense of dissatisfaction, their sense of, of it's not right, and injustice in the community, injustice in the nation is growing as well. So while the veneer of a good times is, is getting more and more bright and louder and louder, yet it's, there's, there's more and more society-wide injustice. Let's look at these. Woe to those who join house to house who add field to field. Verse 8 until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large, beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. So you're you're, you're growing this way, but it's all going to come to emptiness. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after a strong drink, and who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts. Right? Everything that you need for a thumping party. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Verse 18 picks up the woes again. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. So here's the image. right? They're, they've got iniquity bundled up on their back they're hooked up to a cart full of sin and they're they're pulling it. And while they're pulling it, right? When you're pulling a cart full of something, it's hard. So they're they're pulling a cart full of sin and they're saying, Oh, let God be quick. Let Him speed His work that we may see it. Oh, let the counsel of the Holy One draw near and let it come that we may know Him. Right? So their afflictions are all coming about because they're carrying all this iniquity and sin around. But they're sort of blaming it on God. And why doesn't He help? Why doesn't He... Help us out here. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, verse 20, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. You've probably noticed a lot of resonances to certain societies and cultures you've seen in history. Uh, I think we see some of this as well. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are I love this is my favorite one probably heroes at drinking wine, valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Masculinity in this culture is being judged by, right, their ability to wear their shirt unbuttoned to their navel and throw up a you know a drink mix and like you know pour it out and be awesome in that way. But they have no character, no strength when it comes to helping the poor, helping the downtrodden, the oppressed. There's no strength for justice. And so because of this, there's going to be judgment. Verse 13, Therefore, you can see the four therefores in this passage. Therefore, my people are going to go into exile. Verse 14, Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite. He's saying, you guys have enlarged your appetites? Guess who else is hungry? Death. And death is coming. Verse 24, Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down into flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust, playing off of the vineyard image again. He's saying it's all going to be burned up and ruined. In verse 25, Therefore, the anger of the Lord is kindled against his people. And, And he goes on to describe the growing threat of Assyria. The nation is not named here yet, but that's the name on everybody's mind. And that threat is growing, and the Lord is saying through Isaiah, it's coming for you. And so again, we land in verse 30. If one looks, looks to the land, look all, the way, look all across the land, and what do you find? You find darkness and distress. Darkness and distress, that's where they are. Pause. Let me clarify something before we go back in to talk about the point of Isaiah 5. So God made two covenants with Israel. The first covenant was the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant God made when he called Abraham. He said, Abraham, you and all your descendants I'm making a covenant with you. And It is an unconditional covenant. God says, you just sit there. I'm going to do all the work for this covenant. So it is sure and unshakable and his promises are guaranteed. Then after they come out of Egypt in the Exodus at Mount Sinai, God through Moses makes another covenant with his people. This is called the Mosaic Covenant and it's conditioned. God says, if you will be my people, if you'll do the job that I'm calling you to do and if you'll follow my law, then what? Life and blessings. And if you rebel against what I've called you to do and if you reject my law, then curses and death. Deuteronomy uh, 30 verse 19 is very clear on this. Moses says, See, I have put before you Life and blessings and curses and death. So please choose life that you may live. So all of these curses that are coming on here, this is why Isaiah sounds the way it does sometimes. Why there's so much, I'm going to judge and punish and because they've broken the covenant. And so they're reaping what they're sowing there. And yet Isaiah has these little references to, but, not, but all is not lost. God is still going to be faithful to his promises What's that referring to? The Abrahamic covenant, which is the bigger, deeper, truer—not truer, bigger, deeper, unconditional covenant. All right, back to Isaiah five. What is the point of this chapter? The point of this chapter is to help Judah see themselves and their situation more clearly. This is what this is what Isaiah is doing here. You remember that scene when um, when David commits adultery and has uh, Uriah the Hittite killed and and he thinks he's gotten away with it, and then Nathan, the prophet who was in the court for King David, comes to him, and he tells him, hey, David, I want you to weigh in on that. they got this situation where there's this guy, he's only got one lamb, it's like a pet, his neighbor's got all these lambs, has a visitor come, he takes his neighbor's single pet lamb and kills it for supper, and what do you think we should do about it? And David gets all, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, and then Nathan says, you're the man. That's what Isaiah is doing here. He's saying, my beloved had a vineyard, he, you know, put everything he had into this thing, and now it's got stinky grapes. What do you think we should do? Yeah, we should let it be ruined and destroyed. You're the stinky grape-bearing vineyard. This is what Isaiah is doing here to help Judah see themselves more clearly. They were the beloved vineyard. God had given them every advantage for good, and it had only been, they had only been productive in bearing evil and not good. And so what's going to happen? God is going to let nature take its course. So Isaiah 5 tells a sad story. It tells a sad story to help Israel see where they are and where they will stay if they don't listen to Isaiah. See, Isaiah chapter 5 is the end of the introduction of Isaiah. And chapter 6 begins the main body of the work of Isaiah, of this book. So notice how this chapter functions in context. Look back with me at chapter 4. See this little tiny chapter, chapter 4? Look at verse 2. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious in some coming day and the fruit of the land the fruit of the land good the vineyard right shall be pride and honor of the survivors of Israel he who's is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. This place... that is being described here, right? Is God's people in a place of perfect protection, a place of flourishing and thriving, of of having been purified and cleansed, and that's where God wants them to be, right? That's where they could be. That's where God wants them to be. Isaiah 5, then, is where they are. God wants them to be there, kept by the, the cloud and the fire. You know these images from the Exodus, The presence of God, covering, protecting, and allowing His people to flourish. That's where He wants them to be, but they're in darkness and distress. And so, this sets up the main part of Isaiah then, which is, here's how we're going to get from point A to point B, guys. Here's how we're going to get from point A to point B. The path, the path, I'm afraid to tell you is not going to be a happy path. It's going to be a lot of the reversal. It's going to feel like a lot of the reversal of your fortunes and the fulfillment of your fears, right? You're going into exile under Assyria, which if you know anything about the ancient world, which probably nobody but Bible Bible uh, pastors do, uh, Assyria is like the worst, right? They were like the first great evil empire. They're just trying to figure out how to be evil in a way that doesn't like kill everybody. So they were just killing everybody and doing a really bad job at being a great evil empire. You know, we've got it kind of under wraps now. But, Back then, this is the first iteration of this. So nobody wanted to go into exile under Assyria, but this is what's coming for you. What, what the path is from Isaiah 5 to Isaiah 66 is you need to lose all your losable hopes. You're going to lose all your losable hopes. All right, how do we apply this to our lives today? Do we have to? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> this is just about them then. Right? We don't, I don't want to talk about what this means for us today. It's not a very comforting passage, is it? You know, and right on the face of it, right on the surface of this passage, you read this and you think, ooh. Some of this strikes a little bit close to home. You think, uh, am, am I bearing fruit appropriate to the grace that God has given me, right? He did not spare His own Son, freely gave Him up for me. Am I being appropriately grateful to who God is and all that He has done in my life? Right? Am I being appropriately gracious in response? He who has poured all of his grace into my life—you know, like am I like the Ebenezer Scrooge in my life that I wish I was—the one who who has been transformed by grace and is now generous and kind? And, and if anyone knew how to keep Christmas alive, it was good old Ebenezer, right? Is that how we are—gracious and overflowing in kindness to people? Are we concerned with justice in our communities and culture, our society, or are we more like the folks in verse twelve? We've got lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at our feasts, but we don't regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of His hands. Right, this, this passage definitely raises the uncomfortable question of what would God find if He were to look at the yield of our lives. This is not just an Old Testament question. This is something that the New Testament authors are concerned with as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says to the Corinthians, I beseech you, do not receive the grace of God in vain. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, the author of Hebrews says, the ground that drinks the rain that often falls upon it and does not bring forth good fruit, but briars and thorns deserves to be burned. Ugh. So uh, we feel very uncomfortable, right? This is not a very comforting passage because, frankly, we tend to stink too. But that's not even half as bad as what we really need to feel with this passage cuz i want you to just see something here we don't even deserve these curses right we don't even have the opportunity to deserve these because we weren't part of god's people right we're all gentiles for the most part i don't know if you're like full on Jew, jewish or something excluding you but the rest of us are gentiles Right? So we're not even, like, we don't even have this Mosaic covenant with us. Just see if you can track with me for just a second, right? So we're going we're gonna to trace the garden theme through Scripture for just a moment and kind of notice where you and I are in this, right? In the beginning, in the beginning, Genesis 1.1. In Genesis 2, it says that God planted a garden to the east, the Garden of Eden. He planted this garden, this vineyard. Of course, that wasn't good enough for us, so we were all kicked out of the garden into the wilderness. Where are we now, right? Okay, we are all in the wilderness. A couple chapters later, God calls Abraham. God calls Abraham and his family. He calls them back into the garden by coming back into his covenant, which is symbolized, centered on the tabernacle. And we talked about this, A couple years ago when we studied Exodus, the tabernacle was filled with garden images. Fruit, light, vines. It's this little Garden of Eden in a nutshell that God's people lived their life around. And we're going to plant in the land of promise and it was going to grow. It It was all going to happen again. They were going to work it and they were going to keep it. And God was going to bring about his salvation to the world through Abraham and his family, all right? So they're kind of back in the garden. Where are we still? <laughs> We're still out in the wilderness, right? We're not the people who have been brought back in. So Israel, they're brought back into the garden. They, they go through the Exodus. They get the Mosaic Covenant, right? God is, now he's, he's at work to produce good fruit from his people, but what we see in Isaiah five is that Israel is the uh, they're the vineyard of stinky grapes, because again the the covenant of promises of God are just not good enough for them, and so now what happens to them? Again, they're kicked out of the garden, right? They're they're sent into exile, they're sent away from the garden, away from the presence of God again. And where are we still? Right, we, we didn't move. We're still out in the wilderness. Right? So at this point Israel's kicked out, but they're not kicked out as out as us because they still have the Abrahamic covenant. Go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter two. Would you do that? You turn to Ephesians chapter two. Way far on the far side of the Bible. We're going to read what Paul says about where we were and where, apart from the gospel, we are. Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now skip down to verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. So while this passage challenges us to consider the ways that God's people disappoint God's grace, so that they deserve to be in darkness and distress, yet we're not even among his people to deserve that, this novel condition of being in darkness and distress. We're outside even the curses where we live. It's just curse. As Isaiah goes on in a couple chapters to describe, he says the people, the Gentile people, they live in a land of deep darkness. We are in deep darkness. Do you despair? I think you should. And I think Isaiah's point is to get us to say, yes, we must despair. They must despair and we must despair because only then will we be ready to take the journey that Isaiah wants to take us on. Only then will we be able to open up to Isaiah chapter 6 and see the Lord high and lifted up and begin the gospel journey that Isaiah wants to take Israel and us on. We need to lose all losable hopes so that we can find the one unshakable hope. We need to lose all losable hopes. Right? You and I have a ton of things that we're looking forward to, a ton of things that we want, a ton of things we desire, a ton of things that we take pride in. Well, at least I've got my looks. At least I've got my health. At least I've got this much in the bank. At least I've got these connections. At least, at least, at least. And what do we do? We lean on all those things. I love those things. You love those things. We're in the same boat here. But we lean on those things. We put our heart on those things. We look forward at the scary future and we say, and Jesus doesn't come into it. And that's not what God wants for his people. So we, they, must lose all losable hope so we can find the one unshakable hope. And that's not a fun journey, right? When is it darkest? It's darkest right before the dawn. And what's just before the dawn? What is it just there, the moment before light breaks forward? The deepest dark. And that's where Israel is in chapter 5, verse 30. And that's where we are. That's our world. Need to lose all losable hopes. The story of the vineyard in Scripture doesn't stop here in Isaiah 5. It actually keeps going. So when we come into the New Testament, uh, John the Baptist, what does he say when he shows up? You know what he says? He says, Hey, where's the fruit? That's his big question. And Jesus, when he turns around, he he says, hey, where's the fruit? The week before, Jesus goes to the cross. Right in front of the temple. Everybody's gathered around, right? Things are getting kind of amped up. And whenever Jesus is present, there's soldiers standing by, people shuffling, taking pictures. Everybody's kind of looking around and what's going to happen. So everybody's keyed in. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. There once was a vineyard Right, And immediately, everybody in Israel knows, oh, Isaiah 5. He's, he's telling the story again. But Jesus says, There once was a vineyard, and the people who ran that vineyard never sent any good fruit to the master. They kept everything for themselves, and they tried to pretend like it was their vineyard. And they owned everything. And so when the master would send servants to collect the fruit, they would kill him. And in fact, when he sent his son, to see what was going on, they killed him too. And the point of Jesus telling that story right there is to say to the Pharisees and Sadducees, the rulers of Israel, to Israel, to say, hey guys, this is still happening. Why is Isaiah 5 still happening? You know what? And this is the end of that parable. He says, you know what the master, of that, the owner of that vineyard is going to do? He's going to take it from those guys and he's going to give it to new leadership. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying it's time It's time for new management. It's time for God's king to run God's kingdom. And there's one more reference in the gospel stories that Jesus makes to the, the vineyard story. And it's on the night that he was betrayed while he's given communion and, and talking with his disciples. He says, guys, I am the true vine. I'm the true vine. I'm the... I'm in charge of the vineyard, and I am the one true good vine being planted in it. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm here to take over the vineyard. I'm here to bring different people in, and I'm going to produce good fruit through them. I am the true vine. What does Jesus say? Abide in me, and you will produce much fruit. And so now, back in Ephesians, this is true for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us... This is going to be a long reading, so look at Ephesians 2 if, if you can. Verse 4. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you, we have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus... So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Look down in verse 13. and he came and preached to you who were far off that's us and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father so then you fellowship bible church are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints members of the household of god built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you have any other hope today than Jesus and what he has done? No, you don't. And don't you forget it. Our only hope is in Him. Him to whom all the prophets bear witness, as Peter says. And so I hope today that you will lose all your losable hopes. And I know that's not going to be a fun process, but I hope that you can lose all your losable hopes so that you can find the true hope that is there for you in Jesus, that you can know the one real hope that there is, and those of you who know it and have found it may fix your hope completely on Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus Christ, Son of David, have mercy on us, for we are sinners. And Lord, as we hear about all the things that your people Israel deserved back in the time of Isaiah, for the injustice, for the greediness, for the folly of their lives, so much of it strikes us as well. And Lord, you know that we wish that we were more grateful, more gracious, more full of good works. And so we are so thankful that despite the condition that we were in, very much like Israel, but even more so because we were cut off from their hope. And yet despite of The way that we lived and the condition we were in, you, because you are rich in mercy, have made us alive together with Jesus Christ. That you have saved us by grace, that by the life and death and victory of Christ, the fulfillment of all your promises in Him, and the pouring out of all the blessings through your Spirit, we are now welcomed in, into the vineyard, into the temple. And not just welcomed in, but welcomed in, connected to the good, true vine so that we can bear good fruit as well. Lord, we are here this morning gathered in the name of Jesus because we freely admit and confess that we have no other hope. And yet we're also here because we we accumulate hopes. Our hearts are, are just that way. And Lord, We pray that through your word and the work that you're doing in us, that you would help us to fix our hopes on you so we are not so easily upset by the world, not so easily let down by our own failures or the the disappointments of life. But we can know the peace and the joy that you call us into. In Jesus' name, amen.